welcome to episode 34 of How We Win. All over the country, people are staying home, staying safe, and still doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now, right from your living room or your bedroom or wherever you're working from. The best antidote to anxiety is action, and we'll get through this by taking action together. Today, we're looking inside the Constitution with actor and author of the new book, OMG, WTF Does the Constitution Actually Say, Ben Sheehan. But before we do that, our show is infused with a grace-filled conversation with Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers, the hosts of the wonderful Pantsuit Politics podcast. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. Win. Sarah and Beth, it's so great to have you joining us for this. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. Yay. Uh, first of all, how are you both doing during the pandemic? How are your families? Sarah, you want to start? Yeah. Um, we're doing really good. My kids are really good ages for this. Like, they're not teenagers. They're not desperate to be out of the house. They're not babies and toddlers. They're not, <laughs> you know, totally dependent. Um, So they're at a really good age. It's been fun to sort of be at home with them and learn alongside them when it's not incredibly frustrating. It's one or the other. It's either a delight or uh, a trauma. (laughs) Just just, those are the only options. And so um, it's been nice to be with my family. And we've had beautiful spring weather in Kentucky, which has also helped. And we are healthy, which is the most important thing. So yeah, no major complaints here. That's good. What about you, Beth? Do you have a lot of major complaints to offset Sarah's sunshine? Well, now it would just sound uh, <laughs> spoiled, wouldn't it, if I had some complaints? No, I would be in the space of profound gratitude. My uh, minister Schnauzer thinks that this is the best thing that's ever happened to her. She has all her people around all the time. There's always a lap available. So she's living her best life. My kids are about the same age as Sarah's. I have two girls, four and nine, and they are pretty content just hanging with us. They do begin talking the moment they wake up and they don't stop talking until they go to bed. Um, And I am quite the introvert, so my ears are a little tired. But other than that, you know, I am very grateful. We have everything we need. We're healthy. We've had some nice weather. So um, staying at home is, if that is the sacrifice that our generation is asked, we can handle it. Right. Like hang out on the couch. That's your your civic duty right now. So we we can manage it. We want to talk about the week that was with you guys and dissect what's been going on and your uh, your outlook on it all. But first, before we do that, you all have been rocking Pantsuit Politics podcast since 2015. How did you get your start? How did you guys meet and, and decide to do this? We went to college together at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. We were sorority sisters, which is just kind of a funny part of the story, especially for people who (laughs) only knew us after college. Uh, But Transylvania was a school that was 80% Greek when we were there. So we both ended up in, in one chapter together. It was kind of like there were four sororities at Transy, and it was like the Harry Potter sorting hat. It was very obvious where you belonged. 
And so we were both Phi Muse. We had a, a good college experience. Did you very both make it into Gryffindor? <laughs> yes, that's yeah. pretty much what happened. Mm-hmm. I think everyone would agree. <laughs> Phi Muse, Gryffindor. So we both got there. Um, we had really different experiences because, as will become clear as we talk more, we have very different personalities. So we were kind of on parallel tracks in college. We, we knew each other. We cared about each other. But we were not the best of friends. We went off to law school. I stayed in Kentucky for law school. Sarah went to Washington. D.C. Sarah went into politics immediately out of law school. I did the private firm thing. And then we reconnected on Facebook because Facebook is not all bad. <laughs> Do you want to pick it up there, Sarah? Yes. So fast forward, my husband would not stop harassing me about starting a podcast. You need to start a podcast. Interesting. I was at the time a mommy blogger and he was in just insistent that podcast was the future and I needed to start a podcast. And so I thought at first that I would do like an interview show with all the women I knew from politics, but I did one. It kind of sat there. I really like answering questions, not asking them is the truth. And so I was still doing the blog at the time. Beth was on maternity leave with her second daughter and reached out and said, would you ever be interested in a guest post? And I said, absolutely. That's just less content I have to create. And so (laughs) she um, wrote a couple blog posts, one called Nuance, which was incredibly well received among my audience. That was just basically like, hey, we don't we don't have to stake these black and white claims over every social media controversy and then decide like we know every single thing about that person based on how they feel about Cecil the Lion. People are complicated. Mm-hmm. And so um, I thought, oh, well, maybe this could be a good podcast. And I said, hey, would you ever want to do a podcast? And she said, what's a podcast? And I said, don't worry. I've got that part figured out. <laughs> and so we decided to just start talking. We thought at first we would just do Kentucky politics, but got a national audience pretty quickly. And and, you know, it went from a hobby that we would do in our late, late at night after our babies were asleep um, to really just a mission, not really quickly. That's in, in the sort of timing of the Internet. It's not like we were overnight viral successes, but I think quickly in the grand scheme of life, for sure. So we said in 2015, let's talk about politics with grace. And then down the escalator mm-hmm. came Donald Trump. And it's just been a wild ride <laughs> ever since. That's that's must have been so challenging. Like, okay, so we're going to approach this with, you know, grace and listening and knowing that we don't know everything. And then comes Donald Trump. It it just seems like you're biting your tongue off during every single episode since then. It it certainly feels like that. Yes. (laughs) Well, I think the hardest part for me has been we started off saying, look, we're bipartisan, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was a Republican until last year. And seeing the party be so transformed immediately, just as I was publicly putting myself out there as like a version of the Republican Party that could be really collaborative with Democrats, it just all has kind of blown up in my face. Um, And so trying to figure out how to talk to the audience about that, how to process it myself has been the most challenging part for me. And so what was it for you? What did it mean to... um no longer be a Republican. The label started worrying me as we began to travel more, and I realized that there was just not any space to be a Republican but dissociate from Trumpism because it was so much just eclipsing everything else in the party. Mm -hmm. And I kept telling myself, well, the most important reason that you register with a party 
is your state and local races, right? Kentucky is a closed primary state. I wanted to vote in primaries. I live in this tip of Kentucky that is very red right outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. So I told myself, I want to vote in these primaries. I'm just going to keep my registration and try to be an advocate for a better version of this party. But then when I started looking at my local races and seeing that there weren't Republicans on the ballot who were doing something different than Trump, it's not like I could vote for the non-Trump option. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when I decided that just enough, you know, and the National Party was doing things that were so embarrassing. Trump was being Trump every day. And so I thought there has to be room for me elsewhere and still and and still a way for me to participate in primaries and and do the work I wanted to do and I saw in candidates like Amy McGrath who is running against Mitch McConnell now um, something that feels much closer to my own politics we may have some differences here and there but the spirit of it being inclusive respecting people's individual life choices and circumstances and identities um, having a relationship with business that makes sense it is a much better fit for me at this moment in our history. And it's it's weird, but I hope that it's uh, walking my talk because I've said to people, the labels shouldn't matter so much. So mm-hmm. the label shouldn't matter so much for me either. Well, yeah, I mean, I grew up in D.C. in a political family. And um, I remember a time when we used to be able to really disagree on some, you know, uh, mm-hmm policies, but have civil conversations about where we wanted to go as a country. And, and, um, you know, I've just seen that completely erode as well. Um, Before Trump, obviously, Trump was uh, enabled to come into office by the uh, current GOP. But certainly now it's it's just tough that, you know, I, I, I my heart goes out for, you know, my, my father's a Democrat. He worked for the Johnson administration, but he's from Oklahoma. And all of his friends are Republicans. And a lot of people that I grew up with, they're all Republicans. And I have just an immense deal of respect for these people. And I feel bad that their, um, their mm-hmm. party is no longer in existence, really. Um, so anywho, let's talk about what's been going on this week. I want to hear what has stood out to you two and Mariah First of all, happy Earth Day. It's the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And the Earth seems to really like what's happening right now with us all staying at home. (laughs) Right. I'm really excited about Earth Day because I realized recently when I was talking to my middle son who's eight years old that, you know, he still thinks about and has had climate change and global warming defined for him as not littering. Mm. Um. And I feel like, you know, this time at home with them and homeschooling is a real opportunity to talk with them in a more in-depth way than we usually get to do about climate change, about the earth, about our responsibilities towards the earth. So I have like so many activities planned for (laughs) Earth Day. And I'm really excited about that opportunity because I realized like, oh, man, he is still getting that message that I think has has been the one we send to kids for so long, which is just don't litter. Um, Just don't make a bad choice as opposed to um, try to make good choices as well. We had a long conversation about that here today. Um, My daughters, you know, pop in as Sarah and I are recording things. And I was working on some research about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And I could tell that my older daughter, Jane, was really interested in it. And she wanted to understand more about this this idea, exactly what Sarah was talking about. Like, if I intend to hurt a bird versus people who don't intend to hurt birds, but they take actions that are careless or cheap, 
um, and with total disregard for birds, kill millions of birds instead of the one that the person with bad intention might kill. So we did a little experiment this morning that that simulated an oil spill in a 9 by 13 cake pan with olive oil and water. And seeing their faces like get, okay, nobody meant to spill this oil, but look what happens. Look how hard it is to clean up. Look how dirty your pick-me-pop got, you know, when it got some of this oil on it and how hard we had to work to clean it up. Now, let's imagine that's ocean life. Uh, It really sunk in with them. And I thought "This this is probably the best way we could be using this time that we have right now. Yeah, that's really that, that. That sounds like a really cool experiment, and I think a lot of teachers are going to have some interesting conversations um, when school <laughs> resumes for for people <laughs> as their students come back, having having gotten a little homeschooling. Um, can you tell us what the Migratory Bird Act is? Since you mentioned it, yeah, it's a very old law that we entered into with Canada initially because the snowy egret was becoming extinct from hunting. And so the law went into effect to protect several species of birds. The Audubon Society was very instrumental in getting the law passed and then in evolving the law to include lots more species. It's been really successful. Um, There are pretty stiff penalties in place for companies that violate best practices because, you know, when the law went into effect, it really was about hunting. But now the risk to birds are oil, their power lines, um, all kinds of legal activity that if done carelessly is very dangerous for Mm -hmm. bird populations. And the Trump administration has written a rule that's gone through a notice and comment period that they say clarifies the law. And now their clarification is that if the bird is incidentally taken, that's the terminology, Mm You didn't mean to kill the birds. You just did in the course of otherwise legal activity. You can't be fined under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act anymore. And that's just disastrous because as my nine-year-old understands, (laughs) killing one bird intentionally does not have the kind of impact that killing 200,000 birds unintentionally has. Well, let's not Um, hold Trump up to the standard of understanding that a nine-year-old has, okay? (laughs) So, you know, it's just – it's it's one – rollback in a series of rollbacks, obviously, that's really dangerous and that can't get a lot of oxygen in the midst of coronavirus and election season and everything else that's going on. But it's very consequential. Thanks for that breakdown. That was really helpful. Um, and it's a it's a good reminder. I think that and Earth Day are a good reminder that um, one of the, the down the many, many downsides of this administration is that they have actively um, rolled back so many regulations and laws that were intended to to protect the environment, the air, the water. Yeah. Um, but they seem hell-bent on, on and let's, destroying those. And as, you know, to pull out old school lake off, let's call them protections and not regulations too, because we all can agree, no matter what our political leanings, that we want clean air for our kids to breathe and clean water to drink, you know, so... These are protections to ensure the health of our families, not, as the Republican talking points like to put it, you know, business killing right. regulations. So just saying. Yeah, it's also oh, helpful okay. to remember that, like, President Nixon signed a lot of these into law, like a lot of the the laws that the Trump administration and Republicans have such an issue with now were, were enacted under a Republican president. It's maddening. Maddening is the right word. Yeah. 
Well, what else is going on that that we may have missed, or what you know? What do you want to talk about from the last week that's really stuck out? I think one thing I've really been thinking about is the oil futures market, which is not a sentence I have ever said before. <laughs> um, but you know, doing research for our, our news brief this morning. I read a really great article in the New York Times that said, hey, you know, I know we're all obsessed with the shortages in medical equipment and it's really important, but what's happening in the oil market is most likely some of the the, the more common economic impact, which is we're just going to have more demand than supply or more supply than demand. Um, and a lot of things, not just with oil, um, because the economy has shut down. Um, we really probably need to start thinking about the um the inflation and the impact of that when when we start opening our economy back up that we're going to have lots and lots of things not just oil that we have way more of than we usually do yeah in your podcast that just dropped today i think it was or as we're recording on tuesday um uh you talk a lot about that like what it's going to look like to come back to our new normal to get people um back to work and stuff. I thought it was a really great exploration of that because we don't really know what it's going to look like. But um, what are some top lines for that? Because I'm sure we all have thoughts there. Well, kind of a guiding light that I've been operating under is just remembering this is a really rare opportunity to pause and think, how do we want to build this back instead of let's rush to do everything exactly as we had it. It's kind of like a because I have small children, I think of it as like, we built a tower with blocks and it fell down and now all the blocks are here on the table. We don't have to build the same tower again. Right. So a lot of things that I think haven't been working particularly well can be addressed as we start to phase in a new economy. And I think this is why the work that y'all are doing at Swing Left is so critically important because it has become really painfully clear what the priorities of Republicans are in drafting legislation like the CARES Act and looking at reauthorizations and adding additional funds. And I think right now putting money into our healthcare systems, putting money into testing capacity is as essential to business as putting more money into the Paycheck Protection Program. I support mm -hmm. that too. But if we don't have the testing capacity, it doesn't matter what else is happening in the economy. Um, so those priorities matter a lot. And I also just think we could be using the Paycheck Protection Program and others like it to do some of the work that would be more restorative for our economy, like prioritizing women and minority-owned businesses hmm. um, as those funds are received. You know, businesses that have historically struggled with access to capital, I think, should be front of the line um, as the government makes these investments to try to get people on their feet again. Yeah, I think this is a really um, – it's so hard to know the tone to take with all of this um, because so many people are like having devastating coronavirus experiences. But this is an opportunity to look at our country and see very starkly like where we've, where we've really let a lot of groups of people down and how that has deadly consequences when global pandemics, which will – given the way that our world is, will probably be more prevalent moving forward. But healthcare is the prime example. People being forced to live paycheck to paycheck so that when they miss one paycheck, their entire lives fall apart is the other thing. And then we're seeing how poor access to healthcare and, you know, 
crappy environments have made Black and Latino communities incredibly vulnerable to this to this virus. Um, so if we make these laws and only use them to to rescue big business and to keep people, you know, still living check to check, it's a real missed opportunity for our country to to really improve. No, I think that, you know, one thing we've been talking about a lot is that coronavirus has just accelerated the path of change. And what that's done has revealed exactly what you're talking about, which is all the structural inequalities, the gaps in our social safety net, the institutions that are struggling under the weight of change. And, you know, it's not that it's revealing it that we didn't know it, um, any of these problems existed, That, but it's just... Um, we keep using the word um, like clarifying, like like boiling it down to its essence just much quicker, I think, than um, yeah. we're used to seeing, mm-hmm. you know. And I thought that Andrew Yang's campaign accelerated UBI and the idea of universal basic income quickly. Well, man, did, did, we, mm-hmm. did we go <laughs> even faster yeah. um, in the face of coronavirus and the idea that the government should just hand out checks? And I think there there are so many areas that will be we'll see this impact. We'll see that as everything gets faster and things get more intense and things start to crack under the pressure, um, there will be lots of areas that we're having these conversations around and not just conversations, um, but actual action and change. Yeah. Well, speaking of action and change, let's uh, we always talk about reasons for hope. So let's go around the virtual table and um, and share a reason for hope. Um, who wants to go first? No one. Okay. We'll skip that segment. <laughs> I was going to go first because I just talked. Yeah, I can go first. That's fine. Um, I feel really hopeful as I look at how people are engaging even through the ugliness of the fight that we have about the economy right now. I see more people pushing back on Facebook against bad information Hmm. um, than I've ever seen. And people Hmm. who are typically not politically active, I see standing up to say, no, this virus is real. You don't know what you're talking about. My friend's a nurse. You know, people's willingness to share their personal stories, which is the only way to bring in someone to political participation who hasn't been there before, right? There has to be that sort of hook of look at how this directly impacts your life. And I think for I, I I hate the situation we're in. I wish we were not here. I never want to sound like Sally Silverlining. I totally agree with you, Mariah. <laughs> it's so hard to know what tone to take. But as as we think about what makes me feel hopeful, it is seeing people who I think will come into the political process in a big way, who've been missing from it for a long time and will come in with a lot of passion about what their priorities are. And it's a really great point about the personal stories, too, because that is how we connect with each other, certainly how we connect with um, voters and volunteers to bring them into the organizing that we do. And and uh, you're right. I'm hearing a lot of people sharing their experience with this and making it really poignant and real. So uh, thank you, Sally Silverlining. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sarah? I think... That in the way 
coronavirus can reveal structural problems. It can also reveal um, spiritual deficits and hmm. having the time, even in the middle of a crisis, well, especially in the middle of a crisis, because, you know, just because we don't have a good language in America for the power that suffering can bring um, as far as growth and insight and self-awareness um, doesn't mean that we don't experience that. And I think so many people are experiencing that. Um, they're seeing because time has slowed down and the world has sort of stopped in a lot of traditional ways. Um, and because crises always sort of give us that moment to, to reflect and think and take a breath, even if it is a bit ragged. And, you know, I know that sounds, you know, to start off talking about the, the power of suffering is a weird place to talk about hope, but I just think <laughs> they live hand in hand. And I think that lots of people in their individual lives are seeing things for the first time, um, struggling through things for the first time and um, preparing to make major changes and to see that um, in the, the course of the everyday that they were too tired or too busy or too overwhelmed to see what was missing or what they wanted more of. And I'm really hopeful that people will come out of this experience um, with those lessons and with those insights and ready to make changes. Nice. Well said. Um, what gives me hope today is actually something that I heard on Fancy Politics. <laughs> Which, which is this idea, and it, I, I believe that if I, if I recall correctly, you all were talking about the protests, and this idea that um, with our citizenship comes a lot of freedom and so many rights, but also a responsibility to each other to um, do what we can to keep each other safe. And when I see the protests, I see that people are saying, you know open things back up now, you know, I see people who are scared and, and frustrated. This is truly a sign of the country that we live in that you go out and, and protest during a stay at home order and nobody arrests you <laughs> or, <laughs> or anything like that. Um, so, you know, let's have some perspective. Um, but I see people who are, you know, really frightened about their, their bottom lines, which I, you know, you know, so many, so many people are, but we do have to remember in, even in that fear to, to take care of each other. And here in California, we had a, a protester in like a full hazmat suit. So <laughs> some real like caution and mixed messages happening there. Big um, mixed message. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully they'll, they'll start staying at home, but you know, fear understandable, but let's have some perspective and, uh, and treat each other as, as well as we can these days. Yeah. Great advice. I, I, and let me just say really quick about the protest, even though we're in our reason for hope thing, <laughs> it makes me crazy that the media is so obsessed with these small protests when for better part of three years, we've had hundreds of amazing protests and rallies and events with thousands and thousands of activists on all kinds of really important issues that don't get covered by the media. So anywho, uh, <laughs> that's a whole topic we could get into another time. But um, well, but that segues into my reason for hope, actually, 
which is that even during this time that is uh, so tenuous and uncertain um, and we're all affected by it in different ways, activists are really staying active. And in our circles, our organizing community, we have seen people who don't want to get complacent. They understand what the stakes are, even starker now, you know, what, what Besser and Mariah all just said. You know, we're, we're looking at things through a new scope, and we see how important it is to do things like protect our health care and elect people who are going to have uh, a response to this. Like, you know, uh, Brian Kemp in Georgia is opening up uh, tattoo parlors and massage parlors. Sounds great. I'm going to go get a massage and a tattoo in Georgia. Mm-hmm. But um, we were thousands, just a mere thousands of suppressed, disenfranchised votes away from having a different governor, Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. there. So, you know, these elections have major consequences. And mm-hmm. I'm seeing this community of volunteers who don't want to stop. There was a big day of action here in California, um, making phone calls virtual for... Virtual day of action. Virtual day of action, thank you, <laughs> for a congressional race in CA25, people making phone calls. It was awesome. We had, uh, I think, about 500 people signed up for it. So that's really exciting. And, uh, you know, we meet people where they are. Everyone uh, is is getting through this the best that they can. So um, if you're listening to this and like, I'm just not ready to do something, that's totally fine too. You know, just navigating this this uh, reality that we're in and doing it with your family and friends is is step number one. But there's a lot of great stuff to do. And that takes us to our to-do list. Mariah, what did we do? What was it, Thursday? Tell them about our letter writing party. It was awesome. We did a virtual letter writing party uh, with Swing Left. Uh, folks from all over the country got on Zoom, wrote letters while Steve and I chattered away and took <laughs> questions and got some really great future guest ideas. So that was awesome. Doesn't that sound fun, Sarah and Beth? Yes, it does. Yes, I think that's amazing. I wanted to add on to what you were saying about your activists and in relation to your letter party and to 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 list in general um i had a great conversation with an activist on a board i'm at where she was saying um she noticed on her on their i think it was their local party facebook page if she shared like really action oriented um this is where you can donate money or positive news articles or shared what they were doing, what the local party was donating money to or what they, what action they were taking. They got so much better engagement. I mean, I think if you're an activist and if you're looking to make an impact, um, this is a really important moment because people are watching to see what groups, what organizations, what brands, whatever um, are out there trying to make change and create positivity and that, will leave an impact for a very long time. Yeah. Great tip for all the people who are pivoting to online activities out there. So thank you for that. Share positive posts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, okay. So our, our every week we do uh, a to-do list for people, as you just said, to give them specific actions to take. And um, that's the whole point of our show. So, um we are going to encourage everyone to write letters to voters because it's really fun and easy. You can do it from your own living room. You can go to swingleft.org slash letters. As always, we'll have that link in, on our page and write from home. Or you can use the action finder on Swing Left and find some events 
near you. And I have some exciting news here. We're breaking our new besties, Sarah and Beth, from your favorite Pantsuit Politics podcast, are going to join us for a letter writing party. Woohoo! So that's going to be Sunday, May 24th. We'll have the link on our page. Um, also happens to be my birthday. Just saying. I'll have a cake for you. <laughs> Everyone will eat their own little mini cakes <laughs> on the Zoom. I didn't say mini. <laughs> ah. I'll, have, I'll have a cake for you. <laughs> so, Sarah and Beth, thank you for joining us for that party. That's going to be really, really fun. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I can't wait. Also, to do this week, make sure that you subscribe to two podcasts this week, Pantsuit Politics and How We Win. And if you're already subscribed, ask a friend. Those are two things to do. Technically <laughs> three, but really two things to do. That's that's totally doable. Beth and Sarah, I guess we will uh, talk to you again soon enough on May 24th, if not sooner. But thank you so much for joining us, and um, and thank you for all the great work that you do. We really appreciate your grace-filled conversations and the approach that you have to politics. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us, and thanks for the work that you all do. We love a to-do list. That whole approach really mm-hmm. sings to us. <laughs> That's how I'm getting through all of this. And clean out that closet. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. We'll see you on the 24th. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks. Bye. Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Ben Sheehan is a former award-winning executive producer at Funny or Die. He founded OMG WTF to teach voters about state executive races during the 2018 midterms. In 2016, he helped register 50,000 voters through digital videos as the executive director of Save the Day. His new book, OMG, <laughs> OMG WTF Does the Constitution Actually Say, is available for your stay-at-home reading now. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I wish that uh, we could be in person. I actually got to meet Ben when he was recording his book at our the studio that we record our podcast in here in Hollywood. Oh, cool. So get the audiobook too. Read along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was, a really, that was really fun. I know. We had great plans to sit down and, and do this podcast interview and become best friends forever, and uh, and then corona happened. So, I kind of feel long. like we did come, become pretty good friends. We, we were on the path to best friends forever, but I feel like we, we really established a rapport in the, in the brief time that we had. Derailed. Like, you haven't reached out once since this all happened, so <laughs> you're pretty much dead to me. But we'll, it's true. It's, it really is on me. No, I'll, I'll take lives. responsibility. <laughs> Anyway, um, you started out as an actor and executive producer at Funny or Die. When did you first get involved, though, in registering voters, helping win elections? Were you involved in politics growing up? So I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I was um, basically my parents were involved in politics from a young age. 
or I, I they were I, I've been around it since I was since I was very little. Uh, my right. mom worked in the United States Senate, and I remember when I was six years old, and she took a napkin at dinner one night and drew two houses and wrote the number four thirty five in one house and the the number one hundred in another house, and taught me about the difference between the Senate and the House. So I sort of soaked this up from from an early age just by the luck and of growing up in D.C. and and the proximity of it. But I I studied political science in college and and sort of have been paying attention for for a long time. And so when I was at Funny or Die, I would always try to gravitate toward the uh, political projects. And then when I was doing Save the Day with Joss Whedon, uh, those were all political videos that we were doing in the lead up to the election. Um, and basically in every job uh, uh, I've had, I've always tried to find a way to work uh, politics in. Uh, now we're surrounded by it constantly, so it's it's less of a uh, <laughs> uh, um, less of a labor to shoehorn it in. But I've I just happened to grow up and around it, studied it, um, and have tried to work it into you know whichever whichever job I've had. That's a cool origin story. It sounds like uh, you learn the skill of breaking things out down to to easily understandable bite-sized pieces from your mom on napkins. Yeah, and and I learned a little bit of that from my uh, from my dad as well. He coaches people on public speaking, um, everyone from Democratic presidents to uh, uh, to executives. So it was sort of a combination of of learning this information from my mom and then finding a way to sort of distill it. But also a lot of that I learned it at Funny or Die, creating things for uh, people uh, with short attention spans. I'm including myself in that, and really <laughs> sort of honing in on how can I convey this information in the shortest and least boring way possible. Well, I would say it worked because your projects have gotten over a billion views. Uh, did you go in with the ex- with a, the billion view expectation? And what does it feel like to make that kind of of an impact? <laughs> well, uh, no, I did not go in with the uh, <laughs> the expectation of that. Uh, a lot of that is due to the fact that when I was at Funny or Die, we got to work with, or I got to work with people um, of note uh, with large following. So uh, uh, many of those views are through that. And then I got to work on a few music videos uh, as well that got uh, very high high view counts. So it, it's kind it's kind of weird to sit back and think that um, uh, the projects <laughs> I've been involved with in some way have had that sort of viewership, but the ones that I'm I'm proudest of are the ones that sort of take important information and, and distill it down. And, um, you know, whether it's getting a, a, an emo band, there's a video I worked on with uh, Adam McKay where we took uh, uh, um, Antonin Scalia's uh, dissenting opinions on uh, same-sex marriage and turned the most flowery parts into an emo song. And I wrote this emo song and the band Coheed and Cambria recorded it. Um, and they got requests when they were on tour to actually perform this song. But uh, <laughs> stuff like that where you sort of take these weird angles and uh, sort of turn, turn the news and, and politics and information around and make it in a way that sort of surprises people and helps them uh, uh, digest the, the point. I love that. And we may have to play some of that on the podcast. I don't know if we'll probably get kicked off all the platforms if we do. But So of all the areas of politics, all the stuff that you learned from uh, your mom and how to talk about it from your dad, why did you decide to write a book about the Constitution? So when I was doing OMG WTF stuff in 2018 and, and during the election cycle in the midterms, uh, this stood for Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, and Florida. And we were specifically focused on state executive races, governor, 
secretary of state and attorney general. And I'd have these events yeah. and friends of mine or, or peers would come up and, and ask me questions about Rex Tillerson or Jeff Sessions. And it would kind of dawn on me a few minutes and, or a few mm. seconds of the conversation that they think that I'm talking about U.S. Secretary of State or U.S. Attorney General, and they actually were unaware that their state had those those positions at the state level. And this and other situations happened enough where I realized that there's a real sort of blind spot for a lot of people in their in their 20s and 30s when it comes to how government works. And I was curious why that was, and I sort of looked at my own uh, privilege, you know, uh, have being exposed to this information, but. I, the light bulb really went off when I looked at the data on civics education, and it turns out that today only eight states require a year of civics or government education K through 12. And these mm. cuts started after the 1960s, but they really started after 2002 with No Child Left Behind, where there were all these federal financial incentives for schools to uh, perform well in reading and math. Uh, that was continued in 2010 with a group of governors uh, uh, agreeing to Common Core. So you had all these incentives and tests around reading and math. And so other subjects that weren't included were sort of starved and, and shrunken. So now we're at the situation where only eight states have this. And I graduated high school in 2003. Uh, a, a lot of my friends graduated during this time, and we didn't really get a lot of civics education. So I wanted to really start at the beginning. And in the one class of government that I took in school, we were lucky enough to get pocket constitutions. And I kind of went back out of curiosity and looked at it, and I found it completely inaccessible the grammar the tone the the punctuation the capitals i mean it just it was it's, it's like a different language so i thought if there was a way to digest this and make it simpler then we could at least start with the foundation of our federal government uh and help give this information to all the people who you know didn't get the civic classes that that they should have fun fact i actually carry a pocket constitution in my laptop bag with me everywhere i go and it's so tiny, I can't read it. Uh, it's just kind of there. So I think I'm going to swap it out for your book instead. <laughs> <laughs> I know, because that makes it even harder with the, uh, the, the, the dense grammar and capitalization. And then you have to use a magnifying glass to, to get to it. It makes for a very uh, inaccessible reading experience. I don't know why it's there. Just so in case something terrible happens to me and they go through my possessions, they'll be like, wow, Steve carried a constitution with them. That's really the only reason it's there. So it's a prop. It's a prop. Just like wow. the bookcases on everybody inter being interviewed on every news show right now. Those books are all props. It's just blank pages on the inside. Um, <laughs> for, um, for people like Steve who maybe carry around the Constitution, maybe they've, they've browsed it a little bit. Um, what is something that they're going to learn from your book about the Constitution that's probably going to blow their minds a little bit? Well, one is that we don't actually have the right to vote for president. Um, this is something that we've always assumed and we're, we're taught from a young age, but we didn't all vote for president uh, until really 1880. And the responsibility for choosing electors or really choosing the method of how electors are chosen falls with, with the states, the state legislatures. And since 1880, every state has allowed the citizens of the state or, or the residents, I should say, to hold a uh, to, to vote in a statewide popular election. And then that determines who the the, the electors are, are, are pledged to. But this is not something that we have a constitutional right to do as much as we we may think that or uh, expect that. 
Um, I would say largely the fact that even while Congress can override uh, uh, election laws when it comes to uh, the times, places, and manner of choosing um, uh, representatives and, and, and senators to a large extent, um, you know, this, this, is, this is something that states make the decisions on. And, and we've been seeing this a lot with the, with the primaries where different states uh, have different methods of, of voting in primaries and voting in general. Some states, um, you know, like Utah and, and Washington and Oregon already have, you know, statewide vote by mail. That's, that's, that's the common means of voting. Uh, other states, uh, you know, still had their elections during a, a pandemic. So I would say the combination of just not having the constitutional right for for residents, the people of the country to directly vote for president, uh, that's nowhere in the Constitution. The fact that states have so much power when it comes to to voting. And I know you've you and your organization have um, have have dealt with this a lot with uh, with with um, with your work. And you talked about it on last week's podcast. So those are two things that really jumped out at me that uh, we've just sort of always assumed uh, when it comes to elections, but that actually aren't in there. I had no idea. That's a little bit scary. Thank you for and, that. And it's more to add to that, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't until the uh, 17th Amendment in 1913 that people had the ability to vote for, uh, for senators. Until 1913, senators were chosen by the state legislatures because it was sort of the state governments having representation in the federal government. And then it was ah. the people's house where people could vote for directly for, president, for, uh, for representatives. Um, as long as they could vote for their state representatives, then they had the ability to vote for their U.S. representatives, and that's determined by the state. So I guess to sum it all up, there's a lot less democracy at the outset than we expect, but we've made strides in this because now people elect senators directly. Uh, we've made changes to the uh, electoral college. We've uh, prevented people's voting rights from being taken away based on uh, uh, race, uh, on uh, sex, on um, uh, uh, many different things, uh, ability to pay a tax or a poll tax. Uh, 18 year olds now have the uh, mm -hmm. uh, right to vote. So we've made a lot of strides, I think, in the last uh, few hundred years that have expanded democracy. But when you go back and look at the source material, um, it's clear that we have more democracy uh, in many ways now than, than we did, at least when it comes to certain federal elections. Nerd question. <laughs> do you have a favorite amendment? I do. I have, I have, well, I have two. Uh, <laughs> one is- You don't have to tee it up. Uh, is it? It's not a nerd question. <laughs> I mean, I'd say, all, I'd say, I'd I'm, say the, I'm the nerd for asking it. Like, what's your favorite amendment? <laughs> I'd say all of these questions probably have some categorization <laughs> of uh, uh, edging into nerd territory. But I would say I think the Ninth Amendment is uh, uh, really interesting. And it basically says there are rights, there are fundamental rights that people have that aren't in here. Uh, and what's in here can't be used to deny the rights that we basically forgot. I mean, the, these are this is James Madison's way of uh, preventing people's fundamental rights that they forgot to include in the Constitution from being trampled upon. Um, and that's, you know, applied to things like travel and, and personal health decisions, uh, things like that. So that's a pretty important catch-all um, and a very forward-thinking one. And then the, uh, the 14th Amendment is just, there. there's so much in there that was uh the second reconstruction amendment that established uh, uh birthright citizenship equal protection of the law i mean there's there's so much in the in its different sections um i would say those two two amendments uh um if i were to pick a favorite those those two would be would be one and two what's your favorite amendment mariah 
probably like some some people maybe i don't know all of the amendments off the the top of my head and what i i love about the whole omg wtf uh canon let's call it is that i you know I'm like one of those adults. I don't know when I took civics class. I know I took a government class my freshman year in high school, but I remember being so completely overwhelmed as a young adult about how local and national federal government worked. And I was a journalist coming out of college. I like people were allowing me to go on TV and report things, and I had no idea what was going on. And I don't think very many people. Um, really do. And so that's why this is so helpful and, and just like, and, and something that you should, I think, go through. And, you know, since then I've learned a lot, but I have to refresh my brain, which is like full of holes by this point every so often and, and remind myself of what all of this is, is about and, and what's going on. Well, I think that there is a tendency to sort of be embarrassed or or be ashamed and and this and this goes for everyone there's some part of our brain that tells us that that we should know this and that we uh, should be embarrassed or ashamed for not knowing it but the truth is that it is just not a priority in our education system and it makes me think a lot about the speech that George Washington uh, to get really nerdy and throw some history in that George Washington gave uh, his final uh, State of the Union before Congress in 1796 And he basically pitched the idea to Congress of creating a national university that prioritized civics and government education because he thought it was the most important subject and that we need to teach everyone how government works so that they can then run the government that he and his buddies just set up for everyone. And compare that to today where only eight states require a year of civics and government education, um, you know, we 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 put this pressure on ourselves or 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 beat ourselves up for for not knowing this, but it's it wasn't taught to us, and it and it should have. It should be you know the most important thing, or or you know tied for the most important things that that we learn. So you know, my my hope is that you know this. There are so many great organizations that are putting civics education back into schools, um, like the Mikva Challenge and like Generation Citizen. But there are also the people in their their twenties, thirties, forties and up who who either got very little of this didn't get it um and hopefully this book act, uh, acts as a, a a refresher to kind of you know share that information it's a really great great point and um this the sad thing is you're right we shouldn't feel shameful for it it's it's been a, a big gaping hole in our education for a long time but uh the people who should feel shameful about it are you know, the many elected officials. Uh, we have so many members of Congress now who didn't study civics in school and who don't know the Constitution and would probably do very well to read your book as well. So those people should feel total shame if you're a sitting member of Congress and, and aren't Maybe brushed the up president. on civics. And that guy too, yeah. There are definitely some elected officials, both at the federal and the and the state, and I'll also say the local level, that are kind of bank on us not knowing this information because they can do things like uh, uh, mm. uh, gerrymandering uh, districts, uh, both local mm. uh, state legislature and, and U.S. House. Uh, they bank on people not knowing this because if, if we don't know this information, then we can't act as a check because technically we're their bosses. Right. We, we hire them for their jobs. We pay them their salaries, benefits, and expenses. We decide if we want to hire them 
again every two, four, and six years. And if we don't know how to evaluate if they're doing a good job or even what their job is, then they can kind of stay in power. And, and they're banking on us, or, or some of them are banking on us to a large extent, to not know this so that we're not, you know, bosses breathing, breathing down their necks. So um, there are definitely members of, of Congress and, and all levels of government who don't know this information. Uh, but there are some people who do and are banking on us not knowing it. So, you know, this is this is the time with everything going on uh, to really educate ourselves so that we can make uh, wise decisions and informed decisions all the way up and down uh, our ballot. Speaking of that, let's end with the same question we ask everyone else. What gives you the most hope? What gives me the most hope is that a lot of people I can tell between um, just between social media, between your organization, between all these other organizations that have formed in the last few years that really fundamentally understand that there are some things uh, that are, are systematically broken and systematically wrong and we're not sort of looking for the the shortcuts and the the kind of you know band-aids on a, a a broken arm we're really looking to make deep fundamental change and uh, you know i mean look at what you and your organization did in in 2018 you were you were such a crucial part of uh, of flipping the house and and you did it and you led the charge and you know, this this organization didn't exist uh, four years ago so the fact that uh, a group of people can get together and have this resounding effect and we can connect uh, uh, quicker uh, and in more meaningful ways than ever and there's a real desire to sort of take a, a, a generational approach to to fixing these problems and and asking the questions why is it like this why has it always been like this um, you know the more swing left that I see out there and, and other organizations like it, uh, the more hope I get because I think that, you know, this, what we're going through right now is horrible. But if there can be a silver lining, it's that we can come out of it uh, fixing the, the big problems that we honestly should have fixed a long time ago. Thanks for the reminder to, for people to get involved too. That's so important. And part of being involved is knowledge uh, and the rest of it is taking action and and voting. And I would just say that if there's one thing what listeners can can do is just to educate themselves just on who their representatives are. Even just knowing your two senators uh, at the federal level, your one U.S. representative, your state senator, your state representative, that's half the battle right there. And, and following them on social media, signing up for their email lists, and um, really sort of following their activity because it's hard to hold people accountable if we don't know who they are and, and what they do. Yep. Mariah Craven always says, down ballot is where it's at. That's true. <laughs> Thanks for giving me credit for that. <laughs> Thank you, Ben, for such an awesome conversation. And I hope um, people check out your, your book and, and get educated, informed, and activated. Well, thank you so much. We mentioned our letter writing party that we did last Thursday and how much fun it was. We're really excited about my letter writing slash birthday party. Our, it's my birthday, our letter writing party <laughs> <laughs> on May 24th with the Pantsuit Politics podcast. That's going to be really great. We wanted to share some uh, recordings from that letter writing party, some of the great people who uh, shared what it felt like for them to be part of that. 
Yeah, I can't wait for people to to hear what it was like to be in the Zoom room with us writing letters. Let's take a listen. So I'm going to be starting small and doing some letter writing parties for my um, Flip the 49 group. And I'm going to keep writing letters on my own and do my postcards. And right now I'm working furiously on face masks, which maybe it'll keep some people alive so they can vote. Who knows? So this is a lot of fun. It's been a good month plus since our last Cleveland area um, activist group got together to write letters. So it was cool to write letters uh, again with people from all over the country. Um, it was good to hang out like that. So this is a lot of fun. Um, this is the first activism I've done, you know, since this whole crisis hit. This is the first time I could actually get the energy to do it. So this is fun. Uh, my wife, Diane, and I had a really good time doing this. And um, we're going to keep on trucking. We're going to kick Trump out. We're going to kick out the Republicans. And we're going to do this thing. So thank you to everybody who's on this call. Uh, Matt, thanks for everything you do. Steve and Mariah, it was cool hanging out with you guys after just listening to you all the time. It was nice to see you. And uh, thanks to all the other activists out there doing the work. Uh, we all appreciate you very much here in Cleveland, Ohio. We had a, a group here in Fresno. We got together every month and wrote letters together. When this happened, I was kind of lost. And then I saw that we could do the virtual letter writing and I got very happy. This is probably my third time doing this like this. And I will just continue to do more because we need to kick out all Republicans because they show they're just not really interested in any sort of governance and just get people in there who actually care. And thank you for everyone being here. We gotta just keep on going. Thanks to everyone who joined us for that virtual letter writing party. And thanks everyone for joining us today and for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Let us know how you're staying busy during the corona pandemic, what's bringing you hope. Tweet to us. I'm at BluesBoySteve, and Mariah is at Mariah underscore Craven. Or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. Thank you so much to our friends at Dimcast. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share us on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. And you can always check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And then you can also sign up to volunteer there. We so appreciate you being here with us and we'll be back with more next Wednesday. MSW.